All right, good morning, Grace Community Church. We come now to the preaching of the Word of God today. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 18. And we have a lot to cover this morning. So we're going to call on the name of the Lord, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into this text. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day and this church. God, we thank you for all that has gone before us in this moment. And Lord, we give you great thanks today for the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes us clean from all of our sins. Lord, we thank you that as Christians, we can come to your word today with no condemnation, Lord. And with a heart to please you as our Father in heaven. And Lord, we ask for that today. God, we pray that you would banish condemnation from this hour. And that you would help us as your disciples to lean in today and to hear your word and to heed it, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would be faithful to give us light, Lord. We want to learn. We want to know your ways, God. We amen our brother's prayer from earlier. Teach us your ways, Lord. Let us walk in your truth, Lord. The unfolding of your word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. And we ask for, for your help this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin our time today by reading God's word. We'll back up a little bit in Matthew 18 and we'll start in verse 12 this morning. And we'll read to verse 20. Matthew 18, verses 12 to 20. This is going to be the passage of scripture that we're going to give attention to this morning. Let's read it. This is the Lord Jesus. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now we're going to dive into Jesus' command today regarding church discipline. Okay, And this is, if you're a member of Grace Community Church, this is not a new teaching for you, but it's an awesome opportunity to be reminded of the truth and the commandments of Jesus Christ. If you are a visitor to Grace Community Church you have managed to visit Grace Community Church the day that we preach on church discipline. And so welcome this morning. We welcome you this morning. And, you know, this is one of the things that often is not given a lot of attention. And so you get an opportunity. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard of this teaching in your life. And we're going to try to unpack God's word this morning. We want, we want it to be helpful for all. So we're going to talk about Jesus' command regarding church discipline. This is an often neglected obligation that Christians have to Jesus Christ and to one another. And so we're going to talk about this for just a minute before we start breaking down this passage. There is no doubt 
that church discipline has fallen on hard times in the American church. Okay? In other words, the norm today is, to, is you look around and churches don't practice this commandment. That's the norm, and it's been like that for almost 100 years in the American church, broadly speaking, generally speaking. Okay? But I want to say a few things on the front end. I want to remind you, it hasn't always been this way, and it's not this way everywhere in the world. It hasn't always been weird to practice church discipline. Okay? If you want to practice church discipline today, you've got to just you know, decide on the front end, I'm willing to be weird. But it hasn't always been weird to practice church discipline. Let me mention a few things here. Um, from the very beginning of the church, you know, in the book of Acts, there were lines drawn between who's a part of the church and who's not a part of the church. There were those excluded from the church from the very beginning. We see that in the New Testament letters as well as the book of Acts. But then if we, if we pick up in church history, you know, we fast forward to the Protestant Reformation. Um, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, church discipline was highly valued and it was frequently practiced. In fact, church discipline coming out of the Protestant Reformation was often noted as one of three. Let me say that again. One of three of the essential marks of the true church of Jesus Christ. And you say, wow, okay, I wonder what those marks are. I'll give you an example of this. This is Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, and I gave you a study guide um, to help you track this down for later. Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, um, arguably the second most influential Protestant confession coming out of the Reformation, uh, asked the question, what, is, what are the marks of the true church? How can we know it when we see it? And it gives three answers. Number one, the right preaching of the gospel. And we say, amen. No gospel, no church. Got to have the gospel right. Number two, the right administration of the sacraments. And that's the ordinances of Jesus Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in fact, this is one of the things that separates the parachurch, like a college campus ministry, from an actual church, is that a church baptizes and takes communion together. So they said, number one, you got to get the gospel right. Number two, the right administration of the sacraments. And then number three is the exercise of church discipline in punishing sin. And, you know, uh, the thing that I want to make you aware of is you're like, whoa, what if they don't do number one? Well, they're not a church. What if they don't do number two? Well, they're not a church. What if they don't do number three? Well, Belgian Confession says they're not the true church of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that in a minute. The Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, chapter 30, Article 3 says this about church discipline. Church censures are necessary. Okay? I like that word. They're necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring others from like offenses, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ, for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if it should allow his covenant to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. So I'm giving you a taste for our Protestant forefathers thought this commandment from Jesus was very important. And some of you are saying like, okay, that's, that's Protestants. Well, what about Baptists? Okay, what about Baptists? We're Baptists here. Uh, Dustin, you know, you keep telling me, tell me what the Baptists say. Okay, let's keep it Baptist for just a minute, okay? Historically, Baptists have been very diligent in the application of church discipline. Let me give you a few uh, little blurbs here. London Baptist Benjamin Keach, influential in the Baptist movement that began in England. In his work, The Glory of a True Church, which is a little bitty book, I commend that to you for a read, maybe 60 pages. Benjamin Keach, The Glory of a True Church, tells us that it was typically necessary in this period of time, the mid-1600s, it was typically necessary for a church to denote one meeting every month for public discipline. Okay? You say, wow, Benjamin Keach wasn't playing. 
you know. But he's not just talking about his church. He's talking about just giving you broad strokes. Like this was the typical, when you think about the frequency of the practice, he said one meeting every month for public discipline. All right, historian Greg Wills tells us that in pre-Civil War America, the average Baptist church, listen, excommunicated 2% of its members every single year. In other words, that was the norm. Now think about that. Do a little math in your head for just a minute. A church of 400, that means that the average and the norm, that they were seeing eight people every year removed publicly from their church. Okay? And even the strongest words, we could, we could uh, read Baptist theologian John Dack has this to say about church discipline. He says, when discipline leaves a church, Christ leaves with it. When discipline leaves a church, Christ leaves with it. Now, here's, here's what I'm going after. You're saying, man, that is heavy language. And man, that's a lot of church discipline. Okay, And I want you to feel the weight of that, that we're the weird ones. Okay, not them. Okay, in church history, like this is, it hasn't always been weird to obey the Lord Jesus. We're the weird ones, not them. And I want to give give you a taste of that. Now, I am not suggesting that we go as far as some of our Protestant forefathers have gone. Okay, I'm not suggesting that we go as far to say if you don't practice church discipline, you are not even a church. Like you're not even recognized as a church. I think 1 Corinthians is a helpful example here that they weren't practicing church discipline in 1 Corinthians, yet Paul deals with the Corinthians as a church. And so I don't think we should go absolutely as far as some of those statements we just read, but, but at the very least, we should say that if a church doesn't practice church discipline, number one, they're not healthy and number two, they're disordered. They're in disobedience to Jesus Christ. And so I want everybody to see, like, man, this is a really important thing. This is not a little tertiary thing over here. This is a really important thing. And churches that are not practicing this need to be seeking to remedy this deficiency quickly. It's a matter of obedience to the Lord Jesus. Practicing church discipline should be the norm for the church, it shouldn't be weird because Jesus commanded it in his word. And we're going to unpack all of this. Okay, we're going to unpack all of this in Matthew 18. Let me take one more pass. Okay, that was the church history route. Let me take one more pass and let's think about for a minute, minute why is it so neglected? You know, if it's in the word, why is it so neglected? Let me lay out, I think I have five things for you to consider here when you think about the world that we live in and the times that we are following Jesus in and 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 we are charged to great commission to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded so this is part of it okay we need to think why is this so neglected and I'll give you five reasons number one is and, and these are not necessarily a number of importance. These are just five reasons. Number one is there is widespread acceptance today of an unbiblical view of love. Okay? A different view of love than the Bible's view of love. And here's the problem. Church discipline requires hard things to be said to other Christians. Okay? It even at times can require conflict with other Christians. It's not comfortable. Okay? And think about how this contrasts with the modern version of love says this. Only be nice. Only say positive things. Only feel good stuff. Only affirming of others. Never critical. Nothing confrontational. And never telling anybody that they're wrong. And you can see that class, that if we accept that unbiblical view of love, we can't practice what the Bible calls us to. The biblical view of love is different. You can jot these down. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now think about that. Now, Jesus is not giving anybody a license to be a jerk or, or you know, uh, unloving, okay? 
But the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, if you have a real friend that loves your soul, part of loving your soul is going to feel like they're wounding you at times. Like, hey, I don't like what you just said to me. Okay? And then you think about it for about three days and you're like, you know what, they're right. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Part of biblical love is being willing to wound those uh, in order to win them. Proverbs 27, 6. Uh, and think about the opposite of this. So faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, Jeremiah 6, verse 14 says this. This is an indictment of false prophets and false teachers. Jeremiah uh, 6, 14. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying peace peace when there is no peace. And I want that to land on you for a minute. What do false prophets do according to the word of God? They look out and they say sin, they see sin, there is no peace. And they have this distortion coming out of their mouth saying everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Peace peace when there is no peace. And so if we embrace that unbiblical view of love, we're more like false prophets that are indicted in God's word than faithful friends that wound uh, when it is needed. Um, number one, widespread acceptance of unbiblical views of love. Number two, now I remember seeing this a couple of months ago, and I thought this was very interesting that when Paul indicted the Corinthian church for not practicing church discipline and you can and you should go back and read and study through 1 Corinthians 5 maybe this afternoon because that's another example in the New Testament whole chapters given to church discipline one of the things that stuck out to me is when Paul put his finger on the root why are you not doing this he didn't say you know they're just misinformed like they just don't know and they need to know that the Bible teaches it, that Jesus requires this. He didn't say that. You can go back and read 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, you are arrogant. Now, I want to pause right there and just get you to think for a moment. How in the world is not practicing church discipline arrogant? That's exactly what Paul says. You are arrogant for not doing this. You are arrogant. They're arrogant, Paul goes on to say, because you are tolerant. You're tolerating things in the church that not even pagans tolerate. Now, isn't that a buzzword in our day? Tolerance. Okay? Tolerance. Tolerance in our day is the virtue of all virtues, and the sin of all sins is to be what? You guessed it. Intolerant. Okay? But God's word tells us that to tolerate things in the church that God forbids is you guessed it, arrogance. That is arrogant to do that. Now, why is it arrogant? Because it presumes that you have a better way of dealing with it than God. I mean, think about that. That's exactly what it says, that when God says this is the prescription for this situation in the word, and you say, well, you know, that sounds a little rough for me, or I, I'm not sure I like that. Uh, we'll th we, we think we'll go this way. The indictment is, that is the presence of human arrogance. That thinks it knows better than God. Now, I think this is still true, okay, in the sense that there is way too much in our day human arrogance in the church masquerading as tolerance and love. I think that's one reason why church discipline is not being practiced in our generation. Number three, there is widespread unbelief. In the gospel's power to change lives. And I'm giving you, you know, some of the foundations here of if we don't believe the right things about the gospel, then we can't practice church discipline. You say, what do you mean? Okay. If all the gospel does for Christians is give a ticket to heaven and boom, you're in, you're going to heaven. If that's all the gospel does, then we have no grounds to practice church discipline. In other words, if in the gospel and through the gospel there's no moral change in a Christian, if they are morally left in the same condition as the rest of the world, then there's no line. 
There's no dividing line. If all the gospel is is forgiveness of sin and there's no transforming power of the Holy Spirit, there's no new heart, there's no indwelling spirit, there's no new creation, then you don't have any ground to practice church discipline. Okay, The church is just like the world. This is why antinomians can never practice church discipline. Churches that teach and believe antinomian theology or even softer versions of this, uh, uh, when, when any mention of holding believers to standards of conduct and standards of obedience is automatically labeled legalism, you can't practice church discipline. Okay? But we know better than that. We know better than that from God's word. Jesus makes us new. He makes us new creations. He, he, by his great mercy, he causes us to be born again to a living hope. Raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6. He gives us a new heart, Jeremiah 31. He fills us with his Holy Spirit and causes us to walk in his ways. In other words, every Christian is presently being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're not perfect, but we're not who we used to be. That's exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You're not who you used to be. Uh, and, and when Christians sin, we don't respond like the world does. There's a difference. We're grieved by our sin. And we repent of our sin. And we, we freshly run to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so without this confidence and the transforming power of the gospel, we can't practice church discipline. Church discipline can't, can't, can't live in an environment with unbelief and the transforming power of the gospel. Number four, and this is closely related, is the gospel's ability to transform a whole people, like the whole church, into competent judges. Okay? In other words, there's, there's one way, you know, unbelief manifests itself, uh, and, and you could call it Tupac theology. Only God judges men, right? That's not what the Bible says about Christians. The church can judge you. The church can render a judgment about you. And you're like, man, you know, we, we got a bunch of sinners. How in the world can sinners get it right? Well, part of the transforming power of the gospel is to create in the church of Jesus Christ a competency to administer his discipline. He, that's why he gave us the key. Okay. Uh, and you see this in, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, right after 1 Corinthians 5, and you can read this one as well. Uh, we clash with this worldliness again, this worldly idea of who are you to judge, says the world. And the word of God, Paul, responds to the Corinthian church. Christians will judge angels. Hello. Christians will judge angels. He says, how much more matters relating to this life? How could it be that there's none wise enough among you to settle a dispute between brothers? In other words, he's exalting in that text the competency of the church of Jesus Christ to get it right. Okay, And in 1 Corinthians 5, he actually commands us that we don't judge outsiders. It's those inside the church that the church of Jesus renders a judgment about. All right, number five. Meaningful church membership, and I'll hit this one quickly. You can't practice church discipline unless you have meaningful and clearly defined church membership. And the reason that this is important is that church discipline only plays out on the local level. <laughs> okay, we can't, we as Grace Community Church, we can't discipline somebody in Vicksburg, you know, or in India. It happens in the context of the local church. And because it happens in the context of the local church, you have to have this clearly defined body of this is who is among us. And we have this authority and responsibility over and and this is who is not among us. OK, it needs to be formal, not in the sense of a formal ceremony, but it needs to be formal in the sense of clarity that it's clear to you and everybody else. I'm not just an attender at this church. I don't just come here every Sunday for a month, two months, three months, and then automatically I'm considered a member. 
There needs to be some formality where you pass from a tender in a local church to a member of a local church. I mean, think about the presumptive nature of a pastor who just presumes by the fact that you have visited his church 10, 15 times. I'm your pastor, uh, sir or ma'am, and and now you will be uh, required to submit to the leadership of this church. Think about how presumptive that would be. It's like, no, no, I'm just attending. I'm seeing what you preach. I'm getting a feel for the life of this church. There needs to be some form of clarity in the membership to practice church discipline. And one of the things that's happening all across this land is that we're losing the ability to draw that clear line of who is among us. Who is among us. I mean, it's way more common than it ever should be for a church to have 500 names on their roll and 300 of those names they haven't seen in five years. And if you lose that ability to draw that line between this, this, this is who's among us, these are our members, how can you practice church discipline? How can you practice church discipline? All right, I am, I am thankful and I'm, I'm voicing this on behalf of many of you. I am thankful to be a part of a church that believes and practice church discipline. And I know that sounds weird, but I am. I know that I have brothers and sisters around me that if I stray from Jesus Christ, I'm not going to do that by myself. I'm going to have people aggressively pursuing me and pleading with me to return and, 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 and repent and trust in my Lord. I know that. I don't have any doubt about that. And that's a comfort to my soul. I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful that I get to raise my kids in a church. Think about this. In a church that draws lines around the church in the world. In other words, we got a lot of little ones that are growing up in a church that those lines are communicating something to them. What are they communicating? It means something to be a Christian. It means something. Jesus transforms us. He makes us new by the power of the Holy Spirit. They get that in the culture of just being, I'm so thankful for that. And so I want to, as we dive into this passage, I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful to Jesus in this area. All right, continue to be faithful to Jesus in this area. Let's dive in. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 12. Beginning in verse 12, Jesus asked a question in the form of a parable. And the imagery is that of a shepherd and the sheep. And most likely what's going on here is you have this ancient Near Eastern shepherd and the sheep are entering the sheepfold at night and he's counting them. One, two, three, 50, 60, 79, 80, 81, 90. 99, and then that's it. He knows there's supposed to be 100. He has some way of accounting for them. He knows that 99 have entered in and one is missing. And Jesus says, if that happens, does he not pursue him? Does he not go after him? That's Jesus' question. And the implied answer is, yes, he does. Yes, that shepherd goes after that sheep who wanders away. He leaves the 99, and he goes after the one. And then Jesus says this in verse 14. All of that is a parable. Jesus says this in verse 14. That's how the Father is like, right there. He says in verse 14, So it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In other words, just like, and even more so, just like and even more so, that shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after that straying one. He says, that's how my father is like. It's not his will that any perish, and the little ones there are Christians. It is not the will of God, it is not the father's will that any Christian should stray from Jesus Christ without a pursuit, okay, without uh, a pursuit to pull them back. God doesn't want them to perish. Okay, that sets up this whole framework of church discipline that we see in Matthew 18. So how will those sheep be pursued? If that's what the shepherd would do, and Jesus says in verse 14, that's what my father is like. How will the father pursue those wandering ones? 
very next step in Matthew's gospel is church discipline. And I want you to see the flow of that. That the, this church discipline that we're called to, this pursuit that we're called to in verses 15 through 17 is actually the outworking of the love of God for that wanderer in verse 14. In other words, how does God pursue the wanderer? He does it through his church. The church is the means and the instrument of the love of God applied to that wandering Christian. It's the means by which the sheep are pursued by the great shepherd himself. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that everything about church discipline is love. Start to finish, everything about church discipline is love. It is an application of the loving heart of God to pursue the wayward. Jesus is not calling us to be harsh fault finders. Remember, he, he already condemned that in Matthew's gospel. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1, when he said, Judge not that you not be judged. He talked about using an unjust measure in our judgment. Jesus is not calling us to be harsh fault finders Constantly, you know, uh, trying to turn over every rock of somebody's dress. He's calling, he's calling us to love. He's calling us to pursue uh, our brothers and sisters in love. This is a rescue mission. Okay, The whole aim of verses 15 through 17 is to win or to gain a wandering brother or sister. Everything about church discipline is to be an application of love. Verses 15 and 16. Church discipline is presented to us in four progressive stages. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But notice that each is progressive in this sense. That each stage is triggered. You go from stage one to stage two. The trigger there is a failure to hear. Okay, Or if you go back and read Luke's version of this passage, it's a failure to repent. And that's the hearing that's, it's not just somebody audibly heard you, it's that they heard you with obedience. They heard you with repentance. And so the, the trigger that takes you from one stage to the next is, is they don't hear or they don't repent. Okay, that, It's progressive in that nature. Stage one is a private conversation between you and that person. Stage two is is a bringing along of uh, one or two others to create two or three witnesses. Stage three, this is really important to distinguish stage three and stage four. They're two separate stages. Stage three is a public statement to the church, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, for the purpose of sending that whole church after that wayward one. And stage four, if they don't hear the church, if they don't hear the whole church, then stage four is a call for public removal from the people of God. All right, these are four stages. And, and again, notice the progressive nature. Um, and, and notice this. This is a really important thing to, to consider and to learn about church discipline. The only thing that stops it is repentance. Let me explain that. Once church discipline starts, the only thing that stops it is repentance, okay? Nuance, unless the church fi fi figures out, man, we got this wrong, that stops it. But if the church is right and church discipline has been initiated, Jesus doesn't say, go to step one, go to step two, go to step three. But if that person decides to leave the church, don't worry about it. He doesn't say that. The only thing that stops church discipline is repentance. And there will be situations where, you know, someone is corrected about their sin and their first move is, I'm out of here. Ain't nobody judging me. I'm out of here. Okay. And look at what it says. The only thing that stops church discipline is repentance. So there are situations where a church will hold someone's membership. They have no physical authority to make anybody say that's what we're talking about. They will hold their membership and they will proceed in obedience to Jesus Christ, even if it means public removal from the people of God. The only thing that stops church discipline is repentance.
Okay. What are we to address? This is a really important piece of uh, Jesus' teaching. He says in verse 15, if your brother sinned, let's spend just a minute on that. If he sinned, okay? We're not looking for personal pet peeves. Okay? You didn't say it like I would have said it. We're not looking for personal preferences. Uh, this is how I prefer it. The trigger or, or the cause of church discipline is, is really clear here. It's sin. They have sinned. If your brother sins, what is sin? Sin is an objective breach of God's law. They have broken the law of God. All sin is lawlessness. They have done wrong according to the word of God. This is a very important piece of church discipline. What's the rule of discipline in the church? The word of God. Alone. Just like it's the rule of everything else in the church. The doctrine of the church. The practice of the church. There's a sufficiency in the word of God to establish and to deal with sin. That's really, really important. And one of the, one of the ways... That a church can get church discipline wrong is to discipline someone for human tradition or something, some kind of human man-made standard instead of a breach of God's law. And guess what that is? That's abuse. That is an abuse of authority for a church to exercise discipline over anything but sin. Okay? We, 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 can, we have the authority to say everything that God's word says. We don't have one ounce of authority as a church to go beyond the word of God. We don't. We are ruled by the scriptures. But Jesus says this. If they sin, if that's what they're doing, he says, you go and tell them. Go tell them their fault. I want to back, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that, tell them in just a minute. But I want to back up and mention uh, one other thing here. The ESV says this. If your brother sins against you, okay, against you. And I want to mention this. There's really good manuscript evidence that the words against you don't belong in the original text here. In fact, the Greek New Testament brackets those words. Tells you we're not real sure about this. The New American Standard drops those words. So the phrase reads, if your brother sins. Okay? And then the cross reference, Luke's version, Luke 17, 3 says, if your brother sins. Okay? And I think that's right. And if that is right, I just want you to notice that that broadens this passage out considerably. Okay? It's not just my responsibilities for things that are done directly towards me, though that's included, okay, sins against me. But if that's right, and Luke's version definitely says that, that this is the prescription for if I see sin generally in my brother or in my sister. These are the duties that are required. If your brother sins, tell him his fault. Who should pursue you know, one of the things that we assume in passages like this is like, man, this is the pastor's job. You know, this is what we pay, you know, this guy for. You, you do all that stuff. This is the pastor's job. But, and it is part of the pastor's job. But notice in verses 15 and 17, all this is in the singular. There's not a word about a pastor, you know, here. And the way that this is presented to us is that this is being presented as an expectation of Jesus for every one of his disciples. Every one of his disciples. Or you could say it this way. The ministry of loving rebuke is a ministry for every member of the local church. The ministry of loving rebuke is a ministry for every member of the local church. Mark Dever says it this way. I think this gets to the root of the question. He says, do our obligations... To each other involve merely encouraging each other positively? Or do they also include a responsibility to speak honestly to each other about faults, shortcomings, departures from scripture, and specific sins? 
And could our responsibilities before God also include sometimes making such matters public? That's something for you to to really uh, uh, consider. Lord, do you only call me to say positive things to others? What What about the negative side of our duty to each other? And Deborah says, and what even about the public side of obedience to Jesus's command? All right, the verb that's translated here as tell him his fault. I want to camp on that for a second. What does the Bible say that you should do when you see sin in another Christian? You should tell them. Okay? I just want to camp on the simplicity of that. Tell them their fault. Pause right there. Okay? Yes, you should ask them questions. To make sure you understand the situation. Yes, you should do that. Yes, you should listen to them explain their circumstances. Yes, do that. Yes, you should be patient with them. Yes, you should empathize with anything that they're suffering. But Jesus says this. Do all of that. But Jesus says this. If your brother sins, tell him his fault. So at the end of doing all that, make sure you you don't forget to do what Jesus told you to do. Tell your brother or your sister that they're wrong if they're in sin. This verb is translated in other places in the New Testament as reproving someone, exposing someone, convicting someone. Not fun stuff. And I'll say not fun on, on the giving end. Or on the receiving end. That's not fun stuff. If you like giving this, something's wrong with you. Okay? Something's wrong with you. Um, It's not fun, but it is good. And the Bible even gives us a perspective that we can learn to love it. In this sense, that if we can learn to connect discipline with love... And this happens in the book of Proverbs. It happens again in Hebrews 12. Happens again in Revelation 3. God says it all in his word. Those who I love, I discipline. If we can connect, reprove with love, we can learn to love, we can learn to love reproof and even desire it. Even if it's temporarily painful. And I say this because of Psalm 141 verse 5. Psalm 141 verse 5 says, let the righteous strike me. It will be a kindness to me. It will be oil for my head. Let not my head refuse me. In other words, that pious heart before God trembles and says, you know, I don't really want it, but I do want it. Let the righteous strike me. It will be a kindness to me. Notice that Jesus says that stage one reproof is to be private. This is required. He says between you and him alone. There's this private encounter. And yet, how many times are we guilty of seeing sin in someone else and telling everybody except the one person that Jesus told us to tell? He says, you go and you tell that sin between you and him alone. Back to Benjamin Keats, the glory of a true church. He he rightly notes that a common cause of discord and division in the church can be traced to right here. He says this, the rule of Matthew 18 is not followed. And one person takes up an offense against another and speaks of it to this person or that person before he is told the offending brother, which is a palpable sin. The brother must not mention it to one soul either within or without the church, until he has proceeded according to this rule. He says that's a big reason for disunity or discord in the local church. And I want you to know the Bible actually names the sin of not doing what Jesus said here. In other words, if you see sin and you don't go to your brother and tell him between you and him alone, the Bible actually has a name for this sin. It's called slander. Listen to Proverbs 11, verse 13. He says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. 
I'll say that again. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. He keeps a thing covered. In other words, there's a graciousness in in Jesus' command here, especially in stage one, stage two of discipline. He does, the immediate uh, prescription is not just put someone on blast before the whole local church. In fact, he writes a prescription here that if you see sin in their brother and he's quick to hear and he repents, nobody else knows about it. Jesus' prescription here guards your reputation. I mean, that is gracious. That is kind from our king. He loves sinners. The circle is to be kept as small as possible for as long as possible. And you see these levels of discretion as we progress through these stages of church discipline. And these are required. These are required. Um, Now, let me take a pass at three mindsets that will keep us from obeying our Lord, uh, our Lord's command to tell our brother his sin. I'll mention three. Number one, there is there sometimes can arise in a Christian this mindset that it's just none of my business. Okay? And let's be honest, there's a lot of stuff that is none of your business. Okay, let's just be honest. Okay, there's a there's a decent truth there, right? But this mindset of none of my business can be wrongly applied. That if you see sin in your brother, this disposition of you know I'm a conflict averse person. I, I I don't want to get into that. It's just none of my business. And it sounds polite, but what I want you to see is that if you measure it biblically, it it is actually a lack of love for your brother and sister. Your brother or sister. And think about how dangerously close it is. It's none of my business. To Cain's response to God. When God calls Cain to account for his sin. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? None of my business. What what responsibilities do I have? And that's his deal over here. And we are our brother's keeper. And we are responsible to guard and watch over one another. And part of our duties are, if your brother sins, go tell him his fault. Number two, there is the I will just pray mindset. Okay, I'm really concerned. And yeah, I see it. And yes, it bothers me. And God needs to change that, that heart right there. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And, that, and that's all I'm going to do. And the response is, yes, pray, because any spiritual transformation has to come from the Holy Spirit. We need God to act from heaven. Yes, pray. Don't stop praying, but don't just pray. Okay. Um, John MacArthur says it this way. Pray, but don't just pray that the wanderer sees the light. Take the light and go shine it in their eyes. You love that. Go love them. Go give them an opportunity to respond to their king, Jesus Christ, and to his word. Um, Pray, but don't just pray. Number three, and this is probably the most popular uh, one, uh, at least in my judgment, is the I will just let it go mindset. I see it. You know, it's wrong. And I see all the little scenarios that could develop if I get in and start, you know, uh, messing here. And I'm just going to let it go. Okay? The I will just let it go mindset. Okay? This is very dangerous, especially for sins against you. That what we were talking about a second ago. That if you have been sinned against and that immediate response, you know what? I'm just going to let it go. I'm not going to get into here. It's especially dangerous because ignoring sin can lead you to sin in your heart against that person over time. And I want to chase that out for just a second. Jesus told us that the second greatest commandment in the Bible was what? To love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he said. The second is like it. Uh, To love your neighbor as yourself. That's actually a quotation from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And I want you to turn there with me for just a moment. And I want to draw your attention to the context of Leviticus 19, 
And I want to show you the context of the second greatest commandment in the Bible. In other words, what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? And the context around that commandment gives some application to that command. And one of them may surprise you. We'll back up one verse to Leviticus 19, verse 17. And we'll break it down in three parts. Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Pause right there. Don't do that. And that's easy enough, right? We, we know we're not supposed to do that. I mean, easy to understand. We know we're not supposed to do Don't hate your brother. Okay? And, and, and then, you know, uh, we're about to get a contrast, and the contrast that we're expecting would be something like this. Don't hate your brother, love your brother. Okay? But that's not the contrast that uh, Moses is about to give us in Leviticus 19.17. Jump back into the verse. Don't hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Okay? Don't hate your brother, step one. But reason frankly with your neighbor. Okay? This is the same stuff that Jesus is talking about here. Right? When you see wrong, you go tell them. You reason frankly with your neighbor. Now connect step one and step two. To not do that is a lack of what? You guessed it. A lack of love. And it's a warning already that you need to be careful of not hating your brother in your heart. You need to reason frankly with him and then go back to step three in this verse. Don't hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Lest you incur sin because of him. In other words, if you, you know, that, that mindset that says, I'll just let it go. Look how dangerous that is to just let it sit in the human heart. The Bible says, go reason frankly, lest you incur sin because of them. Don't overestimate your ability to deal with this stuff. Just obey the Lord. If you just obey him and just trust his word and do what he told you to do, then you're not, then you're not tempting yourself to this bitterness and these offenses that can make you sin back against your brother. And so the command is simple to understand. If your brother sins... Tell him his fault between you and him alone. You should be a conduit of the love of the shepherd for his people. Now that's stage one, private rebuke. If they hear you, Jesus says, it's over. I mean, isn't that awesome? Think about how many times that's happened in your life where a Christian said, hey, I think you were wrong here. And you thought about it and you said, you know what? I was wrong. And that was it. That's 90% of discipline in the local church right there. It's just part of our exhorting one another, admonishing one another. And Jesus says, if they hear you, it's done. But if they don't hear you, Jesus doesn't say, give up on them. What does he say? Progress to stage two. Look around the body of Christ and ask one or two others to help you uh, convince this person of sin. Now, the, the entry of witnesses into this process is extremely wise and helpful. And I want, I want you to see why. It also shows us that, that this whole thing that Jesus is commanding, commanding us to do is judicial. That's what it is. The church is following through these stages. And unless repentance happens, a judicial judgment is about to be rendered by the local church. And so witnesses are called in. They help the accuser and the accused. They're like a safety check in both directions. They help the accuser to establish that this charge is in fact sin. Like is this sin, objective sin, or is this you know uh, personal uh, 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 preferences or misunderstanding? Two or three witnesses help make that really clear. Okay? They also are a safety check on the accused. If the accused says, man, I did repent, and two or three witnesses says, no, he didn't, he slapped Bob in the face. It's a safety valve. It brings voices in to make this objective, not subjective. And think of the language that Jesus is using here. Sin, charges, evidence, witness, everything about this is, is to be objective. Okay, An objective application 
of the law of God. Now, this principle comes right out of the Old Testament. And you could turn back or just listen along. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, 15 says this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. And then he says this. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a, shall a charge be established. Okay. Now, this is stage two. Um, and if these witnesses confront this wandering one and they hear, it's done. I mean, it's done. At any point, if there's repentance, there is, you know, don't take one step further. It's done. But if the straying one uh, refuses to listen to the two or three witnesses, what does Jesus say? What he says, uh, tell it to the church. That's stage three. Tell it to the church. Um, the purpose here, this is really important to that, that distinguishing that we talked about earlier is you got to give the church of Jesus an opportunity to go after this man. If he is excommunicated on the grounds that he didn't listen to the church, stage four, then you've got to give him a stage three, an opportunity for the whole church to pursue him. And so stage three is, is this public announcement to unify the church of Jesus uh, that this is sin, number one, and to pursue this man or woman, number two. It's a gracious, it's a gracious thing um, that Jesus is making provision, uh, taking it right up to the edge of bringing this man to repentance prior to excommunication. Okay, and Jesus says, but um, but if he doesn't listen and then the word even shows up, even to the church, look at that. Think about, think about what's at stake here. That you have this community of followers of Jesus that you are in covenant membership with. Jesus delivers to this group the keys of the kingdom. And if that group collectively is pursuing you and you say, get away from me. Or I ain't turning from my sin. Think about the hardness and the high-handedness that is involved with that sin. And Jesus says, if he doesn't listen even to the church, even to the church, he says, let him be to you as a, as, as a uh, tax collector, verse 17, and a Gentile. A, a Gentile and a tax collector. This is stage four. The one who fails to hear the church, stage four, is removed publicly, removed from membership in the local church and treated like an outsider. Okay, A Gentile and a tax collector. They're no longer considered one of us or among us. A Gentile and a tax collector. There are two other passages in the New Testament that give us some light of what's happening in stage four church, church discipline. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Paul says this. He calls it delivering someone to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. And if there's anybody, you know, feeling that tension of this stuff seems uncomfortable, you need to remember that what Jesus is talking about and the matters that we're talking about, they're life and death. Heaven and hell, eternal punishment or eternal life. There are no higher stakes than this. There are none. It's impossible to treat this stuff too, uh, too serious. This, this is love and souls and the glory of God. And, and Paul says that even this, even this, it has this redemptive aim to it. That they're cast out. So that they'll be brought back. So that, they'll, so that they're, they're delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. It's going to the very limits of the authority of the local church. To try to awaken this person that you're in danger of eternal judgment. It's love. It's love. 
He, Paul even says it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. In other words, there's something shameful about this judicial sentence that God intends to awaken sinners. It's, it's intended by God to be a means of grace to call them to repentance. All right, verse 18 and 20. We got so much uh, to cover this morning. Verses 18 and 20 are among, especially 19 and 20, are among the most misunderstood and misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. Okay, And the reason why is they're taken out of their context of church discipline and applied in this general way that I can ask Jesus, if two or three ask Jesus anything, he'll answer them. And if two or three are anywhere in the world, Jesus is right there in the midst of them. Okay, And it removes it out of the context of Matthew 18 and the, and the judgment and the discipline of the local church. And so taken together, verses 18, 19, and 20, are three different ways that Jesus is highlighting the efficacy of church discipline. Okay, In other words, this is three different ways of saying, this is not just the judgment of men. This is not just, yeah, you say this about me and, and somebody says this about me. Verse 18, J Jesus says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we talked about that extensively in Matthew 16. That's a reference to the keys of the kingdom that are given to the church for binding and loosing, for, for uh, uh, receiving and releasing members in the local church. And the language there is that when the church gets this right, when they bind on earth, Jesus is bounding in heaven. In other words, that's why church discipline is terrifying. Because it's actually Jesus speaking and Jesus rendering a judgment through his church. It's terrifying. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. He says it a little different way in verses 19. He assures the church that he will answer their prayers as they agree on this matter of church discipline. It's not going to be uh, this empty thing when Paul you know, stands before the church and delivers this man to Satan. That's not an empty thing. Heaven is acting behind these prayers. Heaven is moving behind these prayers. There's an efficacy to it. Same thing in verse 20. Jesus promises that when this judgment is rendered, when this judgment is rendered, it's not just a group of humans. It's his instruments, his ambassadors. He's in the midst of them. When they're gathered together in his name, he's there when this is happening. It's with his authority. Okay. Heaven stands behind the church. God answers the prayers of the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. And yet this person has refused to listen to the church. They're rejecting Christ as they reject the church. Now, obviously... None of those things are true if the church gets it wrong. If the church is disciplining someone and they get it wrong, Jesus is not standing behind us. Jesus is not answering our prayers. Jesus is not with us. But I want you to know the emphasis of this passage is that the church is getting it right. Jesus is presuming that the church is made competent to administer this discipline. And he stands with and is administering it through his church. Very often, the initial response of those being disciplined is to feel hurt instead of helped. Okay, We need to expect this, to feel hurt instead of helped. Hebrews 12 says, in the moment, all discipline seems painful. It's just a, 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 it's just a universal truth, but we have to take the long view. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to be misunderstood if we're going to love souls, if we're going to give an account to God. We have to be willing to be misunderstood. Some will leave the church bitter, and they'll go somewhere else and talk about Grace Community Church for 20 years. If you are not willing to bear that scorn, you can't practice church discipline. Okay, It's just part of it. This will be misunderstood. One final thing here is I believe Christians can be excommunicated. Is, is, is this something you want to talk about? Um, 
We can chase this out after the sermon. I don't think it's right to say that every person who is excommunicated is not saved. Give you an example. If we excommunicate someone for sin and we're praying that, that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And two weeks later they come back and they say, I'm, I'm the man. I'm guilty. I am guilty. I have walked away from Jesus and I'm ready to come back. We're the ones who are ready to slaughter that fattened calf and throw a party for our brother. That joy that Jesus talked about, about the straying one that has brought back more joy over that one than over the 99 that didn't leave. And so we are actually praying that if a Christian is excommunicated, that what, what, what can we expect to happen? They're going to turn. Just a matter of time. If they're a Christian, they will hear the voice of their shepherd, Jesus Christ, and they'll turn. And we ought to pray for that. We ought to pray for that. Last two stages of church discipline are severe and they're costly. But I want you to remember verse 14. This is the outworking of the love of the Father. He is not willing that any perish. That's what God is like. He's not willing that any perish. I love this Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. Let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Amen. Let's be a church like that. Amen. Whatever links you go to to hold back a soul from perishing pale to the links that Jesus has gone to to seek you out. I mean, there's nothing comparing to the, the links that Christ has gone to to save our souls, to seek us out. Because here's the thing. Greg reminded us of this earlier. There was a time... When you are not part of the fold of God, you are a wanderer. You are cut off from God. And what did Jesus do? He left the high and holy place. He uh, uh, didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. He emptied himself. And what did he do? It cost him everything to pursue you. He held nothing back to pursue sinners, not even his own blood. And what does that what does that mean for us? It, it means that we have objective confidence. We're loved by God. Look how much God loves wandering sinners. He sent us Jesus. He sent us Christ. And Christ has done everything necessary to save us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would take anything this morning that was said in error and not from you by my mouth. Lord, I pray that you would cancel it, that you would cause it to be forgotten. And Lord, anything that was said this morning that is from you, that is your truth, God, I pray that you would cause it to bear fruit. Lord, we pray that the unfolding of your word would give light this morning and that you would create zeal in our heart to obey you in all of your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.